welcome everybody. Uh, the first meeting of uh, uh, the Reconsidering Early Jewish Nationalism seminar. And our speaker today is Professor Adam Sutcliffe, who is Professor of European History at King's College London. Adam's most recent book is What Are Jews For? <laughs> History, Peoplehood and Purpose, came out in Princeton University Press. He has also co-edited uh, several volumes, including The Cambridge History of Judaism, Volume 7, which covers from 1500 to 1815, and Philosemitism in History, uh, that came with Cambridge University Press in 2011. He is currently working on the history of the idea of empathy in historical writings and pedagogy. Uh, Adam, thank you so much uh, for uh, coming to uh, share with us your thoughts. And um... <laughs> Okay, so thank you very much, um, Yakov, for um, inviting me and for introducing me um, uh, in um, stereo. <laughs> Interesting effect. Um, as I think Yakov uh, said, I, what I'm going to be talking about today is drawn from my latest book, uh, which I'm just going to flash up here and is also behind me in touch of um, also stereo product placement, what are Jews for, um, which is a, an attempt to track the idea of Jewish purpose um, through, his, through history. The idea uh, that Jews have a role in the world uh, that is uh, unique and of profound importance. And it's the starting point of the book that this uh, idea, the Jewish purpose question, as I sometimes call it, um, has been central to Judaism from at least the early rabbinic question. Jews have a covenant uh, with God, uh, but to what end? The Jews were chosen, but why? And what do they need to do on their side of the deal, as it were? with God. And it's an idea that has also, from the beginnings of Christianity, been very, very important in Christianity, because, of course, in Christian theology, Jews remain God's chosen people. Um, they take a wrong turning by not all becoming Christians, but their unique status remains. And uh, both Judaism and Christianity develop in the medieval period uh, uh, essentially messianic answers to the Jewish purpose question that in some way the Jews uh, will lead the world or point the way towards a future world in which things will be transformed uh, for the better, very dramatically, division and hatred will be overcome, uh, and in some way the division between Jews and Christians will be overcome, whether that means that um, uh, Christians will become Jews, as Judah Halevi would have it, in essence, or Jews will become Christians, as most Christians would have it, or Jews and Christians will move to some state beyond uh, that difference, which was essentially Maimonides' answer to the question. These are all permutations, I think, on uh, a common messianic answer to the Jewish purpose question. And that's the backdrop to my study. Uh, but the book really only gets going in earnest uh, from the beginning of the 17th century, because I argue that it's from roughly around 1600, the post-Reformation period, uh, that uh, the Jewish purpose question, rather than being something that Jews and Christians discuss in related ways, but largely separately, uh, it becomes a common Jewish-Christian conversation, an important meeting point uh, uh, in cogitation about purpose in general, or any collectivity, uh, in which Jews and Christians and increasingly secular-minded people from both Jewish or Christian or other backgrounds engage in through modern history up to today. 
So the book ranges across those four centuries to the present. A very important hinge point is the era of uh, Jewish emancipation, the aftermath of the French Revolution. Uh, emancipation and the Jewish Revolution, I, the French Revolution, I see as really important moments where Jewish transformation is seen very much as an usher, as emblematic of an ushering in of a transformed world. But then once we're in the 19th century, that future that transformation isn't something projected into the future. It is something that is happening around uh, everyone in the present. So the Jewish purpose question, uh, the futures the Jews are seen as intimately associated with, are futures that are in emergence. And this is the era, the early 19th century, of the development of a mission of Israel theology in Reform Judaism in particular, but also in uh, Orthodox Judaism. Jews as teachers of ethics and lofty principles to others. Uh, the 19th century is a period of uh, repeated uh, literary representations by Jewish and non-Jewish writers of Jews as exemplars of tenacious uh, virtue. And it's the era in which Jews are associated with the vanguard of capitalism, seen positively or negatively or mixed, depending if you're Zombart or Karl Marx or, um, or others. And of course, the 19th century is also when nationalism emerges, and that's the focus of this paper. Um, after one long chapter discussing those broad themes of 19th century answers to the Jewish purpose question, I have a chapter on which this paper will draw about um, uh, uh, Jews and national purpose, is how I title it, in which I see all of the previously discussed strands of uh, thinking about Jewish purpose, in particularly those 19th century themes that I've just enumerated, flowing together, being re-articulated um, uh, in a very complex way that is of great importance in understanding uh, the history of Zionism. So I'm going to launch in now uh, to that topic more substan uh, substantively. Now, as I'm sure everyone here is, is very aware, usually Zionism is considered as a belated nationalism, a late addition and perhaps even an imitative uh, nationalism following on Italian, German, Central and Eastern European national movements. Seen in the perspective of my book, I think it's really important to understand that uh, in the early 19th century and indeed long before that, um, the underlying template for European thinking on peoplehood uh, was based on uh, an account of Jewish collective identity in the Hebrew Bible. Um, um, and this is the backdrop for the development of Zionism. So if we go back briefly to the 17th century, we see the newly Protestant nations of the Dutch Republic and England strongly identified with the ancient Hebrews, both regarding themselves as the divinely chosen uh, new Israel and the self-righteous uh, Protestant piety and also the economic expansionism of the early modern Dutch and English were theologically underwritten by this sense of neo-Hebraic divine chosenness. Um, the ingathering of the Jews in the Holy Land, uh, which had long been understood by both Jews and Christians as the key event heralding the imminence uh, of the Messianic age also resonated in the early modern period. And think back to Shabbatai Tzvi, the Sabbatean movement, the ingathering of Jews in Palestine in the wake of that, uh, 
met with great excitement by a number of uh, millenarian Christians, particularly in the Dutch Republic in England, and then through John Tolland, Joanna Southcott, other uh, Christians in the 18th, early 19th century interested in uh, the millenarian idea, Jewish millenarian idea. And this gathers critical mass uh, around the 1830s, which is when evangelical Christians in England, led by the social reformer Lord Shaftesbury, vigorously promoted the idea of the restoration of the Jews in the Holy Land. In 1840, at the time of the Damascus affair, Shaftesbury successfully persuaded the Foreign Secretary Lord Palmerston to consider extending British protection of the existing Jews in Palestine to, and to support in principle further Jewish settlement there. The intertwinement of Zionism and imperialism emerges, I would argue, from this long history um, of Christian and particularly Protestant British fascination with the idea of Jewish purpose and the blending of the idea with notions of British purpose. And it's really from around 1840 um, that British geopolitical interests and the restorationist understanding of Jewish purpose uh, began to dovetail extremely neatly. In the middle decades of the 19th century, Jewish internationalist politics became increasingly identified with both the rhetoric and the power um, of the two leading European imperial nations. Invoking their rival civilizing missions in support of their authority over non-Europeans, both the British and the French loosely laid claim to the mantle of chosenness and higher purpose that was traditionally associated with Jews. These imperial missions were therefore particularly usefully burnished through association with Jewish causes and also through support from Jewish leaders, which Alphonse Cremieux in France and Moses Montefiore in Britain enthusiastically provided. Uh, and the role of those two leaders in the Mortara affair of 1858, which in some ways rhetorically uh, uh, repeats uh, uh, some of the issues of the Damascus affair, um, just under two, two decades earlier uh, is a good example of that. And it's against that broad backdrop that we should interpret the work of the first thinker on whom I'm going to dwell uh, for a bit, and that's the French Jewish scholar Joseph Salvador, who had been writing about uh, Jewish history in the long durée in a broadly messianic vein uh, from the 1820s, uh, from the time that um, British um, um, evangelical proto-Zionism really gets going. But this all comes together in, in, in Salvador's writing in his last major work published in 1860, which is titled uh, Paris, Rome and Jerusalem, or the religious question in the 19th century. And this book, some of you might know, but I'm going to try to outline it for those who don't. In that book, Salvador puts forward a very ornate uh, schema um, in which each of his three titular cities, Paris, Rome, Jerusalem, represent firstly a spirit, secondly a temporality, and thirdly a period of history uh, since the French Revolution. So Paris, bear with me, uh, stands for the spirit of revolutionary change, for the present as its, made, as its key temporality, and also for the years from 1789 to 1815 in which progress was dominant. Rome signifies the spirit uh, of not revolution, but reaction. Um, the past since the era of the Roman Empire and the emergence of Christianity. And then in modern history, the throne and altar era from 1815 to 1840. Jerusalem, finally, its spirit is the spirit of re-edification, 
he writes, and renewal and its dual temporality, temporality is in the ancient period, uh, the pre-Roman era of ancient Judaism, and in modern history, uh, the present and future from 1840 through to when he's writing in 1860 and crucially onward to the future. Uh, so the essence of the Jewish mission for Salvador is the link that the Jews provide, um, uh, emblematized by his uh, interpretation of the significance of Jerusalem, as a distinct people, both uh, bridging between the deep past and the universalism of the future. Both a particular and a universal people, Salvador writes that the Jews have been preserved, quote, as a, the repository of a seed for the future. So, Paris, Rome, and Jerusalem, although it's more convoluted than most other texts in that vein, it also echoes many earlier 19th century rearticulations of uh, the mission of the Jewish people. But what's maybe not brand new, but I think foregrounded um, uh, sharply by Salvador that no one else had yet done is uh, the anchoring of that in space and also time. So, as I said, the moment of Jerusalem begins in 1840. Why 1840? Of course, because of the Damascus affair, which Salvador identifies as bringing to, to the fore both the Eastern question in political terms and with that, the plight of the Jews as a people. It also, that year and that episode for Salvador marks the beginning uh, of quote, the movement of Europe into Asia, um, uh, uh, which Salvador sees as reaching its first point of culmination with the concluding piece of the Crimean War in 1856, so only a few years before writing this text, and that's where the historical narrative that he puts forward ends, and at that point beyond, he's looking at Jerusalem as a figure of the future. And to some degree, the Jerusalem of the future is an abstraction, it's utopian, but it's very clear that there is a messianic expectancy that is extremely ripe in Salvador's writing. Um, and he couches this in a strikingly specific geopolitical language that reflected the interventionist Western European mood of the years around 1860. So Salvador doesn't explicitly declare any proto-Zionist strategy or intent, but he unmistakably narrowed the conceptual distance between the theological ideal of Jerusalem and the anticipated future of the actual concrete city of Jerusalem. Others at this precise time went further. Also in 1860, Ernest Laharan, a liberal Catholic civil servant, possibly attached to the Secretariat of uh, Napoleon III, published a pamphlet titled The New Eastern Question, the Egyptian and Arabian Empires, Reconstitution of the Jewish Nation in which he called uh, for the Ottoman Empire to be replaced by, Euro by a European-sponsored Jewish state extended, extending from the Suez to Smyrna. So what one could see is um, Salvador hinting at, possibly, um, Laharan La is laying out as a political agenda. And he envisaged this, envisioned this state both as the fulfillment of the mission of the Jews and as the guarantor of future world peace and prosperity. It was due to the subjugation of Jews at the hands of Christians that the Jewish people were, at the moment, Lahran writes, not master of their own home, 
but with European encouragement, particularly from their French emancipators, uh, they would surely fulfill their holiest of missions and establish the most successful and harmonious of states. So here's a quote from La Haran addressing the Jews. He writes, you, the Jews, you will be intermediaries between Europe and the extremities of Asia. And you will open up the great routes that lead from India and China and to archipelagos still unknown. You will be a moral compass of the worlds in the East. You will be the triumphal arch of the future era of peace. And under this huge portico, great pacts will come to be sealed, witnessed by the shadows of the past and the hopes of the future. Stirring stuff. Lahavan, I think it's clear from that quote, was an ardent admirer of Jews. His vision of their future state was intensely liberal, profoundly linked to the French imperial civilizing mission, and also firmly rooted in the pedagogic, universalist, and messianic understanding of Jewish purpose. Once gathered in their own nation, uh, the Jews would become teachers uh, to the peoples of Africa and Arabia, purifying them all superstition and fanaticism and unifying the world in common belief in, quote, the principles of emancipation, love, charity, alliance and peace. So that's Lahran in 1860. In 1862, Moses Hess publishes Rome and Jerusalem, in which he quotes at great length from Lahran, as I imagine some of you know, he's, he really, uh, it's perhaps going too far to say he really is nicking most of his ideas from Lahran, but it's something quite close uh, to that. And he also cited Salvador, whose title he more or less stole, cutting down to two cities from three. He cites Salvador as evidence uh, for wider Jewish support um, for the restoration of Jerusalem. It's not just me, he says to his non-Jewish readers, Salvador is in favor of this also. Uh, Hess also picks a, fight, picks a quarrel with Salvador, arguing that his, Salvador's religious vision is fusionist. Um, it's a word that's going to come up a bit by fusionist. Uh, Hess means that Salvador envisions a Jewish state that would dissolve Jewish distinctiveness. Hess advocated, in contrast, an enduringly Jewish national state in Palestine. The argument of Roman Jerusalem was underpinned by Hess's conception of Jewish purpose, which had preoccupied him in some form throughout his life. He explored the idea most fully in his early socialist writings um, from the 1830s, and particularly his first book, The Holy History of Humanity, 1837, in which he set out his theory of history. And Hess, in that book, guess what, also um, uh, divides time into three eras. The shadow of Hegel looms very heavily over all of this, of course. Um, uh, uh, to run through that structure very briefly, his three eras, Hess's three eras in the history of holy history of humanity are the early plant kingdom, which was the originary era of Judaism, followed by the animal kingdom in which Christianity was dominant, and then emerging in the late 17th century, the human kingdom. And both those two latter eras, Hess tells us in 1837, uh, were initiated by messianic Jewish individuals. In the first case, Jesus Christ, and in the second case, Spinoza. Hess's great interest 
uh, however, was not in the past, but the future. Uh, he writes at length about the transformations heralded by Spinoza beginning from the late 17th century, which would soon give rise to a new Jerusalem, which would be governed by a new holy constitution of equality and social justice. And the Jews, he argues, will play a key role in this process. Um, um, the nationalism of Roman Jerusalem um, of the 60s uh, seems at first sight to set it sharply apart from Hesse's earlier writings, um, which are strongly uh, socialist. Hess himself insisted, though, on his continued adherence to the schema, the historical schema of the holy history within Roman Jerusalem, and indeed appended a, uh, uh, an epilogue um, to Roman uh, Jerusalem uh, titled Christ and Spinoza, Spinoza, in which he essentially re repeats his theory of history from the 1830s. He quietly dropped the harshly criti critical assessment of Jewish economic activity that is visible in the Holy History and had been the focus of his uh, essay on money of 1844 that some of you might know that resembles strongly um, Marx's um, on the Jewish question. Uh, instead, in Roman Jerusalem, um, Hess co um, commented that among Jews, quote, solidarity and social responsibility were always the fundamental principles of life and conduct. Judaism, he insisted in 1862, was the root of civilization and humanitarianism, and the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine would bring about the regeneration of all humanity. In what sense then would this Jewish state remain distinctively Jewish? Hess argued strenuously against the fusionism that he associated with Sombart and also with the mission of Israel rhetoric most strongly associated with 19th century German reform rabbis such as Samuel Hirsch. In order to account for the continuing significance of Jewish distinctiveness, even in the era of universal harmony that would follow the establishment of a Jewish homeland, Hess offered an elaborate biological metaphor. Each nation, he argued, performed a unique role um, as an organ in the living body of humanity. So England is sort of an industrial digestive system. Uh, uh, Germany uh, discharges the function of thinking. So Germany's the brain, essentially. Um, uh, America has a assimilatory function of regeneration. And the role of the Jewish people is very distinct and fascinating and also the most transcendentally mystical. They represent, he writes, quote, the living creative force in universal history, namely the organ of unifying and sanctifying love. And it's likely, given Hess's religious upbringing, that he consciously adopted this image from Judah Halevi, who in his 12th century Kuzari used the same metaphor, describing Israel as the heart among the nations. And that metaphor appears again um, 14 years later in George Eliot's final novel, Daniel de Ronda of 1876, in which Mordecai, the intellectual inspiration of the eponymous hero, Daniel de Ronda, declares, explicitly citing Halevi, that, quote, Israel is the heart of mankind. And he makes this pronouncement uh, in the novel at a working men's philosophers club meeting to which he has brought Deronda, where the wide where the wide ranging discussion moves from how ideas and societies progress 
to a focus on the question of nationality. Through Mordecai's voice at the meeting, uh, Eliot remolded the classic features of Victorian thinking on Jewish purpose into a highly textured Zionist argument. Jewish history is here once again encapsulated as a tale of remarkable tenacity in the face of relentless suffering. Um, and that theme of, of Jews as uh, uh, tenacious survivors in the face of suffering is the literary trope of 19th century um, uh, Jewish purpose that I, that I discussed in the previous chapter at some length. So Mordecai, in this key chapter of Daniel Deronda, insists on the active energy of the Jews in history, diffusing knowledge and virtue, as well as material goods across the nations of the world, and repeatedly renewing their religious life and their economic dynamism in the face of waves of hatred and oppression. Their purpose in the world, however, will be fulfilled only with the establishment of their own homeland. Eliot, through Mordecai, imbues this Jewish seizing of their own destiny with immense spiritual and historical significance, not only for Jews, but for the world as a whole. So, um, to quote Eliot through Mordecai, quote, the messianic time is the time when Israel shall will the planting of the national ensign. The divine principle of our race is action, choice, resolved memory. Let us help to will our own better future and the better future of the world, not renounce our higher gift. So the Jewish policy envisioned by Eliot will, as for Laharan and for Hess, both reinforce European colonialism by projecting Western values in the East, and it will simultaneously transcend this division between East and West. It will be, quote, a new Judea poised between East and West, a covenant of reconciliation. So this Irenic internationalism conveys the sweepingly universalistic hopes that Eliot associated with the fulfillment of the Jews' particular national destiny. In the final essay of her final work, um, um, in the, the volume, The Modern Hep, Hep, Hep of 1879, Eliot focused specifically on relating the Jewish case to the broader question of national identity and sentiment. All nations are distinctive, Eliot argues in this, in this essay, each in their own way. The, quote, superlative peculiarity of the Jews, though, should be recognized by the English and others and appreciated in a spirit of affinity with them, as one might appreciate, quote, the distinctive note of each bird species while recognizing their communality as birds. Why, Eliot asks, should we look forward to the, quote, complete fusion of the Jews into the various nations of Europe? Jews should, on the contrary, feel bound to sustain their exceptionally rich heritage. Like her fictional creation, Daniel Deronda, they should remain, quote, steadfast in their separateness and aim, quote, to constitute a new beneficent individuality among the nations. Eliot here crisply summarizes what one might call in shorthand the Jewish purpose as national purpose argument. The Jews for her are the vanguard of the discovery of national identity and fulfillment for all peoples. So moving into the second half, if you want to pace yourselves. Um, in the same year, 
Um, as the publication of Eliot's Hep Hep essay, Wilhelm Marr founded his League of Anti-Semites in Germany. And two years later, in 1881, as I'm sure we all know here, anti-Jewish pogroms swept across Russia, leading to a shift of Jewish political energies from the ideal of legal emancipation to other options, socialism, emigration, and Zionism. So modern Zionism is conventionally seen as emerging in this moment, the beginning of the 1880s, and as a response uh, to that context, and to those pogroms especially. And uh, I noted that this seminar uh, on early Jewish nationalism it gives 1881 as its start point. So I think implicitly that assumption is in the, the framing of, uh, of the seminar series. But I'd like to suggest, I have been suggesting hitherto, um, that the early association of Jewish nationhood with the fulfillment of Jewish world historical purpose, above all among non-Jews, particularly from around 1840, and even more particularly from 1860, played a crucially important role in preparing the ground for the, Jew for the Jewish Zionist movement, and just as importantly, for the high level of non-Jewish receptivity to it. So what of that movement itself? Well, Theodore Herzl's belief in Jewish exceptionalism and his insertion of this into the established narratives of late 19th century European imperialism has been widely noted. Less commonly observed though, I think, is the extent to which his rhetoric echoes that of Salvador, Laharan and Hess in the 1860s. We're probably all familiar with the quote uh, from um, uh, the Judenstadt of, he of, 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 of Herzl that in Palestine, the, a Jewish state would form a rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization as opposed to barbarism. But that, I think, very clearly echoes formulations um, in the text I've been quoting from earlier. Uh, Herzl did not explicitly couch uh, his proposal in Der Judenstaat of, of 1896 in messianic terms, but he clearly imbued it with deep universal significance. A Jewish state would not only secure the welfare of Jews, but also, he confidently concluded, unfailingly benefit humanity as a whole. Quote from Herzl, the world will be freed by our liberty, enriched by our wealth and magnified by our greatness. Herzl's most prominent early supporter in France was the Jewish radical journalist Bernard Lazare, who like Herzl was jolted into Zionism by closely witnessing the Dreyfus affair. Shortly before that scandal erupted, Lazar had published his Antisemitism, Its History and Causes of 1894, in which he both critiqued anti-Jewish prejudices and ascribed them to a considerable extent to the reality of Jewish difference from others. The separateness of the Jews, he argued, had profoundly marked their character, heightening both their mystical intellectuality and their worldly commercialism. These traits provoked antisemitism, which in turn further reinforced Jewish separateness and distinctiveness. Most significant for Lazar, however, was, quote, the revolutionary spirit in Judaism, which he argued stemmed from Judaism's emphasis on justice in this world, rather than in Christianity on justice in the afterlife. And that emphasis, he argued, engendered in Jews an intellectual and political restlessness that placed them at the fore of social and intellectual progress. And uh, the most um, important example of this for Lazar was Marx, who he described as having a clear Talmudic mind. 
Ultimately, though, for Lazar, both anti-Semitism and the distinctiveness of the Jews were destined for oblivion. This is in his pre-Zionist phase. Anti-Semitism, he argues, uh, was itself self-undermining as hatred for Jewish capitalists ultimately led to hatred for capital in general and thus hastens, hastened the advent of socialism. Judaism, um, Lazar also believed in the early uh, 1890s, was in a process of dissolution and would ultimately be superseded by a new international spirit of what he calls cosmopolitanism and universal altruism. Lazar's analysis of anti-Semitism was principally based on his understanding of Jewish world historical purpose, which drew together the pedagogical, ethical, and economic strands of 19th century thinking on this topic, and was framed by a prophetic messianism modulated into a secular socialist key. And Lazar stands, I would say, as a key figure in the left-wing tradition of Jewish purpose, which has an important 20th century afterlife, both within Zionism and in antagonism to it. The venom unleashed by the Dreyfus affair led Lazar to temper his optimistic predictions of the uh, imminent transformation of the world into a socialist universalist utopia. However, in embracing Zionism, he didn't renounce socialism or his proud conception of the ethical loftiness of the Jewish spirit and of the special role of that spirit in the world. Jewish nationalism, he insisted, was in no sense incompatible with internationalism. Um, Jewish nationalism was necessary so that Jews could restore their dignity and be themselves. However, the project of Jewish nationalism was not one of pure self-interest, but was imbued with pure, profound moral importance for the world as a whole. Lazar exhorted the Zionist movement never to forget that, quote, you were the people who introduced justice to the world and therefore always to be, quote, soldiers for justice and human fraternity. The socialist universalism of Lazar's Zionism and its fusion with, the with his unflinchingly critical analysis of Jewish capitalism and religious insularity was similar in many respects to the early arguments of Moses Hess. And Lazar's split with Herzl in 1899 over the direction of the Zionist movement presaged the profound strain between outward and inward oriented visions of Jewish purpose, as I'm going to describe them by shorthand hitherto in the later history of Zionism. So moving into the 20th century, some early Zionists uh, were profoundly hostile to the widespread 19th century idea that still endures in the early 20th century of a Jewish mission to others. For Ahad Aam, for example, the idea of a Jewish mission was craven. Jews should proudly assert their own cultural identity, um, Ahad Aam argued, in their own terms and as an end in its own sake. He nonetheless retained an ethically lofty notion of Jewish purpose, seeing the Jewish people as an expression of, quote, the highest type of morality. And the early scholars of the Hebrew University, while heavily influenced by Ahad Ha'am, nonetheless embraced an outward-oriented vision of Zionism, in many ways echoing the key hallmarks marks of Mission of Israel rhetoric. Uh, Judah Magnus, for example, um, argued in 1930 that the Jewish people was a wondrous and paradoxical organism and unlike all other nations. 
its dispersal, its dispersion, dispersion of the Jewish people, enabled the fulfillment of its function as a teacher, spreading light and learning by providing a center for the renewal and deepening of Jewish philosophy and religion, settlement in Palestine, Magnus argued, quote, can help this people perform its great ethical mission as a national international entity. What of Gershom Sholem? Sholem's thinking on Jewish purpose is fascinating and complicated. Um, and I'm gonna simplify grotesquely, but in that grotesque simplification, like Ahata'am, who was an important influence on Sholem, of course, Sholem preferred to focus on the internal dynamics of Jewish history rather than to explain or justify it in relation to the historical whole. Nonetheless, Sholem also believed that the messianic idea was the fundamental Jewish contribution to humanity. By assuming collective agency and rejecting the deferral of messianic realization into the future, the Jewish people for Sholem were finally entering into the, quote, concrete realm of history. This was, as with any conjuring with messianism, a dangerous transition. Sholem was nonetheless convinced that it was invigorating, bold, and by the later 1940s, after the horror of the Holocaust, also an undoubtedly essential task. In a sense, then, Sholem regarded Zionism as a political normalization of Jewish life. No longer would Jews live in deferment. They would instead work together, just like other nationalities in their own states, to build a better future for themselves in the present. However, as a movement that was at its core messianic, the final phase, in Sholem's view, of the history of Jewish activist messianism that Sabbatai Tzvi had unleashed, Zionism was for Sholem by no means only significant for Jews. And in a 1974 essay, he declared that he had never accepted the slogan, like all the nations, as a vision for Zionism. The realization of that slogan, Sholem argued in 1974, could only lead to, quote, the decline or even the disappearance of the Jewish people. Sholem's own Zionism, at least in his 1974 account, was by contrast grounded on, quote, an unshakable belief in a specific moral center which bestows meaning in world history on the Jewish people. A broadly similar belief in the world historical significance of Jews and of Zionism suffused the thinking of the leading early theologian of religious Zionism, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. The upheaval of the First World War, the establishment of the Soviet Union, to which Cook was vehemently opposed, and the more general global instability in the wake of those events convinced Cook that the world um, had entered uh, a period of epochal transformation in which the fulfillment of the Zionist vision would play a crucial role. Like Sholem, Cook was fascinated by the Lurianic Kabbalah and its emphasis on Tikkun Olam. The contemporary world was disordered, he believed, because the Jews were not in their allotted place and their ingathering would bring with it universal redemption and human unity. Cook's activist messianism was based on a firm belief that the renaissance of the Jews in Zionism was central to the divine plan for all humanity. Like Judah Halevi, he believed that the Jews were categorically different and superior to others. Quote from Cook, we are not only different from all the nations, but we are of a much higher and greater spiritual order. The purpose of the Jews, however, was for the world as a whole. 
like so many earlier thinkers, Cook expressed this in lofty moral and pedagogical terms. Quote again, we have made many great moral contributions to the world and we are now ready. Um, this is in writing in the 30s, more or less. We are now ready uh, to become its teacher of joyous and vibrant in the 20s, probably, in its teacher of joyous and vibrant living. However, in opposition to those who continued um, to argue that this mission required the dispersal of the Jews among the nations, for Cook, the Jewish people would fulfill their purpose only through their messianic ingathering in the Holy Land. This event was for him inseparable from the redemptive transformation of the entire world. Cook shared the concern of anti-Zionist rabbis um, uh, that the holy perfection of the messianic era must not be profaned by the corruption of the unredeemed world. Precisely for this reason, Cook argued, a Jewish polity um, could be established only as part of a wider transformation of all human politics, bringing an end to the violence and nationalist animosities of the era. The cataclysms of the 1940s, the Holocaust and the establishment of the state of Israel, transformed, of course, the context in which the meaning of Zionism was considered. For the radical religious wing of the anti-Zionist camp, the Nazi extermination of European Jewry was interpreted as a divine punishment for the Zionists' sinful violation of the oaths forbidding the, quote, forcing of the end, and the state of Israel was rejected as illegitimate. And for the followers of Cook, it was certainly at first, um, dif very difficult to respond to these ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionist arguments, because those arguments policed the rigorous separation between the spiritual purity of Messianism and the profanity of the secular sphere uh, to which Cook himself had been in principle committed during his life. And certainly the Holocaust was not readily harmonized by Cook's messianic optimism, to say the very least. And then a further difficulty was posed by the borders of Israel um, from 1949, which excluded, of course, the old history that the old city of Jerusalem and other key biblical sites. After those territories came under Israeli control in 1967, though, Messianic religious Zionism was, as we all know, vigorously renewed, spearheaded by Cook's son, Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who recast his father's teachings in a more activist form. For the younger Cook, the 20th century catastrophes and triumphs of the Jews were of apocalyptic significance, signaling the irreversible unfolding of the messianic climax of history. This was therefore the time for Jews to settle across the newly occupied territories. In stark contrast with his father's Irenic Zionist vision, which echoed the expectation of many other earlier thinkers that a Jewish polity would be an anchor of international peace, the settler Zionism supported by the messianism of the younger Cook and his more recent intellectual ears has abandoned, I would say, this largely, this outward looking vision and has emphasized instead the importance of Jewish welfare, security and mastery over the Holy Land. The brand of messianism that most influentially stamped the, Jewish, the Zionist mainstream in the third uh, quarter of the 20th century, though, was that of David Ben-Gurion, of course, whose political vision drew together a red messianism, um, inspired in particular by the early achievements of the Soviet Union, with a semi-secular fascination with the biblical resonance of the Zionist project. 
drawing back on, on an idea we've seen in Salvador and La Haran back in 1860, that a Jewish state would be a nodal point of connection between Europe and Asia, um, Ben-Gurion presented Israel as a living bridge, his phrase, between those two continents and more broadly as a mediator between the West and the third world, relaying development aid uh, and even more importantly, ethical principles of peace and justice. And he communicated these ideals through many channels in many essays, for example, in the Israeli government yearbook in which he often emphasized Israel's exceptional role as, quote, a light unto the nations. And that uh, prophetic formulation of, of Isaiah, much beloved by Ben-Gurion, signaled for him the profound distinctiveness of the Jewish people. Um, all nations, Ben-Gurion wrote, regarded themselves as different from others, but no other nation had the same quality or strength of difference as the Jews, which stemmed, he wrote, from the, quote, unique spiritual and moral quality that they possessed. Um, Ben-Gurion did not adapt um, the labor Zionist aim of normalizing the class structure of Jewish society. Um, uh, um, but and he proudly claimed at one point in 1952 that the Jews were becoming a people of workers, as in any other autonomous nation. This did not mean, though, in his eyes, that they were becoming normal overall. Despite their modest collective size and strength, the Jews remained absolutely exceptional, quote, by the standards of ethics and culture. Ben-Gurion was in no doubt this exceptionality was rooted in their status as a chosen people with a messianic destiny. I'll jump now uh, to my conclusion um, and looking at more recent history for the final sort of five minutes or so is that. Um, so the tradition of internal critique and ethical stringency within Zionism associated with Ahat Ha'am, Judah Magnus, Hannah Arendt, and many others, is much less conspicuous today. Uh, this notion of Zionism continues to circulate widely, however, as a descriptive assertion. For example, in the frequent claim uh, that the Israeli Defense Forces are, quote, the most moral army in the world, or to just take one recent example from an appearance of Jonathan Sachs, uh, recently deceased Jonathan Sachs on BBC television on the Andrew Marr show, uh, September 2018, when Andrew Marr asked Sachs whether accusations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party uh, uh, might possibly be aiming to, Marr's word, uh, words, close down criticism of Zionism. Sachs said in answering that, that this was clearly absolute nonsense because, quote from Sachs, Nobody is more open to criticism and self-criticism than Jews. It's something we've been practicing for 4,000 years with the most self-critical people in history. So how Sachs gets away with it, I don't know, but the straight-faced circulation of these rather absurd uh, superlatives, I think, which is not uncommon, um, reflects, I would say, the continued trace of the outward-oriented ideals of Jewish purpose within the rhetoric and collective self-understanding of what is now an overwhelmingly inward-oriented mainstream Zionist movement and indeed mainstream Jewry. Even while promoting Israel as a 
normal state in which Jews have finally attained self-determination like any other people, and even deeming the ex expectation of anything other than normal behavior from Israel as implicitly anti-Semitic, uh, which is one of the items in the examples attached to the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, despite that forward rhetoric, if you will, many Zionists today continue to associate Jews and Israel with exceptional intellectual and ethical loftiness. And I think that quote from Sachs is a, is a vivid example. The universalistic implications of these high ideas, ideals, however, is mostly lost as they now serve, at least in those circles, less as exacting aspirations, which is how they used to function in earlier Zionist history, um, but rather now as self-congratulatory reflexive cliches. In our new millennium, and particularly since the deaths of so many Palestinians at the hands of the IDF in Gaza in 2009 and 2014, the division between outward and inward oriented visions of Jewish purpose has hardened. We are now witnessing, I would say, and this is what I argue in the conclusion uh, to my book, something that can aptly be described as an intellectual Jewish civil war between these two, out, two outlooks, a war that also involves plenty of non-Jewish belligerents and also fascinated uh, non-Jewish onlookers. Uh, the universalistic outward-oriented idea of Jewish purpose is today rallied above all in solidarity with Palestinians and in opposition to Israeli actions and policies. This mobilization holds together complex conceptual tensions, bringing together Jews, Christians, and those who identify as neither, and encompassing a wide range of motivations for placing special emphasis on the possibility of the politics of Jewish collective identification and action being something other than what it predominantly is today. And this impulse is by no means necessarily anti-Zionist. For some, Peter Beinart would be one prominent example. The ethically lofty tradition within Zionism that I've discussed in much of this paper is a primary inspiration for their critique of the current state of the movement. In the opposing camp, the mainstream rhetoric of Zionism today, which functions, I would say, as the primary binding agent, both of Israeli society and of much of the Jewish diaspora, has largely dropped its early vision of itself as a fundamental positive force for the world as a whole. The light unto the nations argument, which was so prominent in the speeches and writings of David Ben-Gurion up to the 1960s, has given way to an emphasis on the entitlement of Jews to collective security and to an environment free of anti-Semitism, and the right also for Jews to define for themselves the essential terms of both of those two things. This Jewish shift towards particularistic self-assertion has taken place alongside the rise in recent years of a broadly similar political outlook within strengthening nationalist movements across much of the world. 21st century Israel has become the focus of considerable interest and imagination, uh, sorry, considerable interest and admiration, sorry, maybe imagination also, um, uh, from nationalist parties and governments in Europe, North America, and beyond. Um, from Trump down, if you will. We can speak perhaps here of a new variant to cause a phrase, to coin a phrase, of the idea of Jewish purpose, a variant uh, that sees Jews not as leading the world to a future beyond differences and divisions, but instead sees Jews at the vanguard of a future world in which those ideals are themselves 
overcome and rejected as outmoded. And nations in this future compete in a spirit of unrestrained and never ending self-interest. Under Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel has, e has engaged eagerly with the global right, conducting a foreign policy reminiscent of Jabotinsky's respectful admiration in the 1930s for other right-wing nationalist movements, even when they clearly encompassed a strain of anti-Semitism. Setting this, Netanyahu, that is, and his policies, in a deeper historical context, looking back to Salvador and Hess in the 1860s, we should see this currently dominant strain of Zionism as, as ever shaped by the same shifts of current that also shape non-Jewish thinking on Jewish exceptionalism and purpose. So in a way, that's one of my central points that we need to see Zionism not as a sort of autonomous, self-defining current, but something very much plugged in and reflecting shifts around thinking about Jews and purpose among non-Jews also. So even if the legacy of the Trump administration will be the removal, at least in the short term, of the plight of the Palestinians as a focus of global political concern, the meaning of Israel for non-Jews will remain potently symbolic of the competing conceptions of national purpose on the left and the right across much of the world. And so the Jewish purpose question and its articulation and contestation in Zionism has certainly not lost its resonance and importance. The end. Thank you so much Thank for this too. fascinating uh, consideration of Zionism, Adam. So much, so much uh, food for thought and uh, for consideration. We are open now for questions and answers. We already have a question. Um, so just to remind you, uh, the event is recorded and will be hopefully uploaded and shared uh, online. So if you do not want your name to be mentioned when you write a question, just tell us so. Um, Adam, if you see the questions, you can read them. Uh, I'll read them aloud just uh, so we have the audience also uh, tuned. This was from uh, Abigail, who had unfortunately to leave earlier, um, but she would have yet wanted to ask uh, about uh, uh, Jewish, uh, well, about uh, uh, Jewish purpose, different Christian context and imperialism. She writes, you moved very seamlessly between Shaftesbury and Salvador, but surely they are operating in such different political religious contexts and particular in relation to empire that this is a rather difficult thing to do? Well, it's a shame that, um, could you hear me fine? Yes, yeah. um, I'm, I would say no, I might be missing what Abigail is um, getting at and she's not here so I can't ask her. So if you Yakov, can help me or maybe someone else might uh, chip in. My, I fear my answer might be missing a point somewhere. But I would say, of course, um, the 1860s are different. The French Catholic um, worldview is uh, is different from the um, earnest Protestantism of people such as Shaftesbury. But uh, in the sort of broad brush analysis that I'm offering in my book, I don't think the 1840 and 1860 are so different, or indeed Britain and France are so different. They're both imperial powers. They both seek to um, uh, uh, justify their colonial project through a civilizing mission. And they both, in different ways, marshal support from Jewish leaders um, uh, behind that idea. Um, uh, and 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 they both they both draw on broad 
those on the Christian side on broadly Christian ideals of um, uh, Judeo-Christian alliance, um, of um, uh, contrasting um, uh, that to uh, Islam and the backwardness of the Ottoman Empire and the unfitness of the Ottoman Empire to be ruling over Christian holy sites, uh, but also not fit to offer adequate protection, protection to Jews in those locations. That's obviously central to the Damascus affair in, in, in 1840. I don't think those concerns uh, disappear by 1860 or in any way are in any way profoundly different. So yeah. maybe yeah. there's something else Abigail had in mind in terms of specific differences that I'm missing. Thank you. Let me, uh, before we uh, address the other questions that already posted, uh, follow up on this question, maybe in a sense reverse the, the, the motivation of it, but no, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, if, uh, but along the same lines, I would like you to reflect uh, for a second upon the, uh, the field from which you come, the, let's call it the history of ideas, Mm -hmm. which in, in the case of the history of the Zionist idea tends to be very inward looking. What I'm trying to say, in other words, if you read Avineris, for example, the Zionist idea, which is like a little handbook of the official biography of the Zionist idea, you have no sense that Zionism emerged before Herzl among Christians. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, there's, an, there's, I guess, an obviously understood motivation to kind of make it a wholly Jewish idea in the sense that they're you know, emerging among Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, nevertheless, it's a little weird. I mean, when, when one reads, one realizes this has been, you know, uh, percolating among non-Jews, well, um, uh, uh, how would I say, very forcefully so. Mm -hmm. If Herzl has read them or not, or if Hess has read them, or not, well, Hess has obviously read them, right? But uh, but uh, George Eliot was not a minor figure that um, uh, historians of ideas would uh, ignore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think um, this applies to the history of Zionism. It applies to a lot of other aspects to, of, of, of Jewish history in general, a preference of Jewish historians to, to emphasize autonomy um, in, uh, in Jewish history and Jewish thinking. Um, and that's something I, I, I forswear in my book. Actually, I, I say at the very beginning that I'm not going at any point to talk about Jewish responses to non-Jewish ideas and arguments, or at any point in the argument, going all the way from all the way back to the 17th to the um, 17th century, to systematically separate Jewish and non-Jewish um, currents of thought. Because already in the 17th century, how does one position someone like Spinoza, who clearly you know bridges those two realms? And by the 19th century, there are lots of um, of, of, of such people. So I think it's um, it's it's factually erroneous um, it, uh, with respect to the history of 19th century Zionism. It's 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 also sort of rather you know rather absurd if you have any understanding of the sort of worlds in which most Jewish intellectuals lived in the early mid 19th century, hugely admiring of European high culture, German, British, French yeah. high culture, very much wanting to insert their thinking uh, into those frameworks. Um, so um, uh, the mission of Israel um, 
uh, theory of Reform Judaism, for example, is utterly Hegelian in structure. Um, uh, it's a reworking of Hegelian thought, essentially, so one can't understand it other than in the context of, of German historicism. Um, and one also can't understand it other than in presenting an image of sort of Jewish um, meaningfulness in the world that resonates very strongly with many non-Jewish Protestants and uh, assimilating Jews in the 19th century absorb as much from those non-Jews around them as from some sort of Jewish current in their in their thought. And, and I think that the in the case of someone like Hess, which is so glaring that um, huge chunks of Roman Jerusalem are quotations from La Haran, La Haran, which is oddly a text no one seems to really look at. Yeah. Even a lot of it is just is literally folded into um, Hess's text. And there is, you know, Rehov Hess in most Israeli cities I visited, but I'm yet to come across a Rehov uh, La Haran. Um, um, because of this ide ideological, um, it's ideological on the one hand to see Jewish thought as autonomous, um, but it's also based on sort of a lazy failure to sort of really enter imaginatively into the sort of mental concerns of most 19th century Jewish intellectuals and um, yeah, their, de yeah. their desire also for approval from yeah. non-Jews, which is what Ahad Am was uh, reacting against so potently. Yeah. Yeah, I just uh, I must say that uh, there is a George Eliot Street in the heart of Tel Aviv. Uh, I guess not yes. for some reason, but for obvious reasons. Um, yes. A question from uh, Marcus, uh, who writes, "Many thanks for your excellent and very thoughtful discussion." You mentioned at the beginning of your discussion the possibility of Christians and Jews coming together as either Jews, Christians, or something new, as per Maimonides. Was there no involvement of these two faiths with the development of the third Abrahamic faith, Muslims? And how would you explain, notwithstanding the periods of Jewish development in Muslim Spain, today there, uh, there appears to be more of efforts to reach accommodation between Christianity and Judaism rather than between either of these faiths with the Muslim faith? Well, yes. Um well, in terms of um, Maimonides, um, I think I misspoke, and my apologies and for, for Maimonides. Uh, his idea of um, overcoming of differences would, of course, be much more with uh, Islam and Judaism in mind than Christianity and and Judaism. That was that's the world in which he operated in, and that was his that was his um that was his perspective. Um, uh, and I um, and I guess I, I I misspoke because the general framing of my book largely is um, restricted to Europe and restricted to what is mostly a, a, a Christian Jewish uh, dialogue. But absolutely, for Halevi as well, um, um, otherness is either triangular uh, Jewish Christian and Muslim or Jewish and Muslim. But neither of those medieval thinkers um, go into much detail about um, uh, other faiths or about um, quite what sort of um, transformation they, they envisage in the Messianic age. Um, uh, these are um, you know, brief and elliptic comments on, on from, from both of them from which one can 
draw out some sort of a distinction between more of a line of sort of Jewish triumph, I think, in Halevi, which is certainly clearer in um, the Hasidei um, um, Ashkenaz uh, uh, writers in um, uh, early medieval France, very much in a Christian sphere. Um, uh, so um, once we get to the 19th century, um, Zionism is a European project. Uh, um, European Jews um, uncritically, uh, by and large, accept the um, dismissive um, attitude towards Islam and uh, uh, of um, Christian or um, Europeans or Europeans of Christian heritage. And that's what feeds into the, um, the Zionist tradition. Um, so, yes. Yeah. Adam, I must uh, note that uh, this was also my uh, my strong impression reading your fascinating book that the focus on Europe leaves this big question, I guess, for the sequel of how is this, uh, how are these issues uh, viewed from the non um, non Christian non European context where Jews obviously resided for you know uh, generations and have developed their own uh, views on uh, these issues. But that's really outside of the frame mm -hmm. of the work. Uh, Danielle uh, Drury is uh, thanking you for an intriguing talk and asking, uh, you mentioned uh, Sholem's rejection of the Zionist slogan, uh, like all other nations, a nation like all other nations. Did other Jewish thinkers who identified with one version or another of Zionism embrace this slogan while also thinking of Jews as chosen or tasked with a unique ethical mission? If yes, how did such thinkers reconcile chosenness and the desire to be like some other nations? Well, that's a very good question and one of the implied questions in the paper that I was glancing over perhaps of necessity rather superficially and there'll be other people in these rooms who are proper scholars of Zionism, which I'm not, who can answer that more fully. But I would say that um, the the normalizing aspect of the Zionist project was also very strong from uh, from the beginning, really. Um, and many Zionist thinkers toggle between a normalizing vision of uh, a Zionist project of a Jewish state and an exceptionist vision and uh, and uh, have great difficulty um, reconciling the two because they're not really um, compatible. Um, they're, 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 they are they're in profound tension. So the, uh, and it's for that reason that um, in my book, this is the fourth, the chapter on Zionism and nationalism is the fourth of the five chapters. And it's the first of two that cover the 20th century. And I follow it with another chapter on normalization and the idea of normalization. Um, and the many, many, um, ways in which Jewish thinkers outside Zionism predominantly have tried to sort of square the impossible of on the one hand yearning to, to, towards um, yearning for some kind of normalization. This is a very strong issue of American Judaism and yet holding on to an idea of chosenness and exceptionality without which uh, it's very hard to have any real argument for Jewish continuity of any form. Mm -hmm. If you really want to be normal as a Jew, not being Jewish, it's very, very simple. You know, you can, you know, can, you can uh, assimilate into um, uh, mainstream um, host cultures, as it were, yeah. which 
of course, plenty of modern Jews have done. So um, Sholem, um, in other of his writings, I think does come very close to um, endorsing the idea of Zionism slash Israel as a state like any other uh, nation. Um, uh, we would need a proper, maybe there's a, a, a Sholem expert who can ask, answer this question in, in, in more detail, but I include um, as an epigram to this chapter in the book, uh, 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 a, a statement by, by Sholem in which he um, rejects the idea of Jewish purpose in saying that, you know, why should Jews be, accept, be expected to have a purpose in the world? No one would ask a French person or an American or a, a Scot, you know, what, what is their purpose in the world? They simply, they're Scottish, they're French, they're Polish, they, they are what they are. And why shouldn't the same apply to Jews? So in that sense, I think he did um, seek and even demand a sort of normality yeah. status but in a different register thinking more um at a more lofty and um uh philosophical indeed messianic level he most certainly did not i don't think he was consistent um uh the interview that i quoted the, the talk i think it was that i quoted from um in which he in 1974 when he argues that he had never accepted um uh, the idea of Israel as a state like any other. That's at a very um, tense moment in uh, the history of Israel. It's, you know, after the 1973 war, at a time at a time when um, you know debates about um, settlement, etc., are still very live, and and he, and he's arguing for a um, one could say in shorthand a a morally lofty uh, position for the Israeli state that refuses to, uh, please correct me if I'm getting this slightly wrong because I'm not an expert, but essentially I think his view in the in the early 70s after 67 is uh, the occupied territories should not be become occupied territories. This is a moment when Israel must act in an ethically lofty way and not in a straightforwardly self-interested way which would be the logic of Israel being a state like any other. So I think after 67 and 73, this becomes really a political question um, in, in, in which normality uh, becomes very much the argument of those who say, Israel just needs to act tough because that's what any other state would do in a quote, bad neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, critics of that position, even if they were in the Zionist tradition, not in previous decades, not so much emphasizing exceptionality. They they try to pull that to the fore again. Uh, but I would say pretty soon after the, um, or even in the course of the 70s, quite quickly, my sense is, um, within Zionism, this morally lofty tradition gets pushed to the edge and a, a claims of normality move to the fore. And became... yeah. Adam, if I may uh, follow up on this, uh, on this before moving on to, well, uh, to Abigail's reappearance. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a very interesting tension. I mean, if we look back to the 
uh, to the Bible as a model, to the Hebrew Bible as a model, um, the, the Israelites are to be liked unto the nation because the, to the nations because they will embody, they will live the law. So mm-hmm. the law that is given is what would make them the example that all other nations would look at. So the the the, the ethical calling and the light on to the nation are two sides two sides of the same coin. And it's interesting to to ask to what degree are those writers, in, specifically in the 19th century, that suggest that uh, a return of Israel to uh, political independence would necessarily amount to, you know, shining light of the nation. To what degree do they consider how is it, the, the nuts and bolts of an ethical life within that political entity to be? I know that, I mean, Ben-Gurion didn't think much about it, right? It's very hard to, to find in what he did an attempt to strive into um, a specific higher moral, uh, um, uh, well, standard or to make Israeli politics or Jewish politics a manifestation of some ethics. This is, this is not have been part of the, the project of political Zionism. But when it comes to those, what, what, what are they called, prophets, did they think that necessarily something within this Israel's polity would have to be also unique? In terms of the life of the nation, um, Again, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that in the with the richness that it deserves, because I'm not an expert on uh, the history of the movement or of Israel. But I think it is interesting thinking about Ben Gurion, for example, that um, the rhetoric of um, of uh, purpose is mostly at a, at a sort of diplomatic level, um, uh, it, and. Uh, Israel will be a bridge to the east, and this could be made concrete, for example, in terms of development of agronomics in Israel and you know, policies to you know, yeah. not just make the Israeli desert bloom, but to export te- um, agricultural technologies to um, the non-West. Yeah. And then I think Ben-Gurion presented that, and not just him, very much as part of um, uh, uh, this bridging role this dissemination of know-how and intelligence and skills uh, to the the non-Western world. Um, 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 Ben Green was also interested in terms of uh, scholarship. um, In the chapter, I I quote him addressing a a congress of scholars of Jewish studies in the the 1960s, which he says, great, you're all here to study Jewish history and Jewish texts. What I really want you to focus on is um, uh, the messianic idea of Israel and the Jewish people as having a world historical purpose for everybody. So he's very interested in intellectuals having that role. Um, In terms of the ethics of Israeli society, I think too much going on for that to be a very strong current after the establishment of the state. If we go back a bit earlier to the Yeshuv, I mean, one example that comes to mind is um, um, Think of Ahad Ha'am, um, who I didn't say much about, but essentially he uh, his rhetoric was more emphasizing Jewish normalization, uh, uh, opposition to the idea of Jewish mission and, and, and Jews somehow wanting to present themselves as useful for the world as a whole. But there's a moment when uh, uh, he writes a, a piece in Haaretz in response in the early 
um, 1920s. I think it's in response to a, a revenge killing by Jews of uh, a young Palestinian. And there's a sort of rather, you know, gleeful gotcha tone to uh, the coverage of this killing. And Hadam is horrified and says, in essence, this might be okay for, as it were, British or Polish or American or German people to, to write about yeah. killing one of their enemies. But we are Jews, we are moral, we have a responsibility to maintain higher moral standards, and uh, that sort of discourse is not okay. So definitely, um, he did seek to be, yeah. to project that sort of voice of moral loftiness in terms of concrete behavior in the issue. Even though I think, again, it's intention, maybe say it's in contradiction is overstating it, but there's a certain, there's definitely a tension between that aspect of his arguments and the sort of, we should just be who we are, just like anybody else can be who they are, side of his other writings. Yeah. He says in, Hadam says in response to this uh, revenge killing of a young Palestinian, if this is the Messiah, then I, he's quoting the, the sources. If this is the Messiah, I don't want to see it. Mm. But then I must mention that uh, Baruch Kurzweil has a very strong critique of Ahad Am not seeing his own back and promulgating this by his secularizing the very notion of Jewish mission, in a sense. Mm -hmm. But this is... Uh, so, um, Abigail ha uh, has reappeared uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, she writes, I just reappeared briefly before taking my son out. We are all in uh, yeah, homeschooling situations. Yes. Uh, I missed the response to my original question, but I'm wondering if there is a Western versus Eastern European Jewish context here. The history of Zionism tends to privilege Russian or East European contexts where perhaps Jewish-Christian dialogue was rather different because the nature of Jewish society itself was rather different. If you think that Zionism is connected to a more authentic East European context, then obviously you might ignore West European uh, antecedents, uh, notably in Britain. Though actually, for example, uh, Chaim Gadella had, uh, had a chapter of Daniel uh, Dorenda translated for the East European press. Uh, must now retreat again and apologize for dipping in and out like this. Thank you, Abigail. Thank you, Abigail. I can't see the, the questions, but I, I'm not going to fiddle around and try to. Uh, but uh, thank you, Abigail. And I'm sorry, the answer to my, I don't think I gave a very good answer to your earlier question. I needed you to. <laughs> Shut it. On, on that question, I think absolutely I, I do agree. And to connect to, I think it was your follow up question to my answer to Abigail's first question, Yakov, um, uh, on um, traditions, intellectual traditions in writing about the Zionist idea. Um, there's very much that tendency to emphasize not just Jewish autonomy, but also the Eastern European Jewish roots of the Zionist idea, because this is mostly written in Israel or America by descendants of such Jews um, who have greater comfort in rooting Zionism as a sort of Eastern European Jewish mass reaction against uh, the um, assimilationist um, uh, priorities of Western European Jewry. Um, uh, but um, it's, um, I think, again, the tension is there. And again, 
Hataam of the invention, certainly his um, disdain for the idea of Jewish mission is very much really uh, a disdain for Western European Jews, Western European Jewish intellectuals. He feels that um, someone like uh, Claude Montefiore in uh, England, who is the person he, he most really reviles when he writes about this in the early 20th century, he sees Claude Montefiore and his sort of liberal Judaism uh, in England, um, Jews of, of an uh, um, Englishman of a Jewish persuasion, as it's often caricatured as, as the most odiously craven, assimilationist, inauthentic form of Judaism he can imagine, and also deeply patronizing towards the sort of Jewish authenticity that he in Odessa feels he represents. Um, so um, the tension is absolutely there. Um, but if you think about Israel, about Zionism as a as a movement, the, the power of which was very much based on its support by Western European powers and by uh, by Jews who knew how to talk to those imperial powers because they lived in them, then I think England and France and a different way, the sort of German Jewish environment are absolutely crucial. Um, and that's why um, I think they're worthy of the sort of emphasis that I gave them in the way I told this story. And again, there are sort of ideological reasons why um, that sort of dependence on Western European non-Jewish thinking and indeed also power has not been part of the preferred internal Zionist uh, story. Thank you, Adam. I think it's a, uh, it's a great point to conclude this fascinating seminar. I uh, really appreciate your uh, spending the time and uh, uh, presenting your work uh, with us. Uh, to remind, the book is called What Are Jews For? It came out uh, with Princeton University Press in 2020, and I highly recommend everybody uh, reads it. Uh, also, just a short reminder, that uh, next week's Israel Studies Seminar would feature Anna Prashitsky's talk about Russian Mizrahi Mediterranean pop culture in the Israeli periphery. Thank you so much and hope to see you soon.